interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Bethany Gorham, Senior Vice President at Ryan Energy Partners. Welcome, and thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Excited to be here. Perfect. So, Bethany, for those of us who do not know, please give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you and your role, please. Yeah, sure. Happy to do so. So, I am with Ryan Energy Partners, where I lead the firm's idea group which is a relatively new creation. IDEA stands for Investor Development, Engagement, and Accountability, where, as I'm sure many of the the listeners on this podcast know, the accountability piece is becoming an increasingly important function with LPs, with your portfolio companies surrounding ESG issues. Um, So Orion is an investment firm uh, offering kind of creative credit and equity solutions uh, to middle market infrastructure companies largely focused on environmental innovation and driving sustainable finance forward. You know, prior to Orion, I, I actually come from more of an impact investing background. Um, so I think that one topic super excited to get into is, is the kind of clear difference between uh, impact and an ESG practice. Um, but prior to moving into private capital, uh, I was actually in the world of data and analytics at S&P Global, where I covered renewable energy, ESG data and content uh, within the market intelligence division and uh, you know, have been working in and around sustainable uh, investing or socially responsible investing, as we called it 10 years ago, starting in, in you know, water microfinance and then moving into the nonprofit world and, and today landed in, uh, in private capital. Thank you very much. And I'm very keen to get into the ESG side of things and very passionate about that. And I'm keen to learn a little bit more uh, about that, especially as I have more and more conversations. It all begins to make a bit more sense and a bit more clarity. And we're certainly going to uh, dive into that uh, today. What's the biggest mistake that you see, Bethany, private equity firms uh, making? I think that, um, you know, given that private capital was kind of the laggard in ESG adoption. You saw the push from corporates, from uh, public markets, uh, and then all of a sudden, this term ESG exploded and people think immediately that building out a robust ESG practice is something that can happen overnight, doesn't require a, a significant budget, can be lumped into the you know the marketing function, um, doesn't have to have a direct uh, reporting line to senior leadership. I think um, understanding the feat of what building out a really best-in-class ESG program looks like is is probably the biggest mistake that I see. Okay, perfect. And so ESG has become somewhat, I believe, a a bit of a misunderstood concept. I know you're an ESG committee member at Orion, and obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, a huge passion for you. So, Bethany, if you could help us and kind of clarify, you know, what is ESG? but also what is ESG in terms of the private equity world, please? Yeah, no, and, and it is. it seems like a simple question, but it really is so important because five years ago, I think myself and a small handful of people probably were the only, only ones that knew what each of these letters meant uh, in, in the term ESG. You know, actually, one of my, one of my favorite uh, pieces of research that a former colleague of mine put out was pulling down Google search results for what is ESG from 2014 through today. 
And it stays pretty non-existent up until the beginning of 2019. And then you see this explosion in people trying to figure out, okay, what do these three letters mean? How does it impact me? And so, you know, whether it is it is used as a noun, verb, or adjective, ESG or environmental social governance simply represents factors that live outside the realm of legacy traditional investment analysis. And while ESG as a practice is going to look very different across private capital, public markets, and corporations, the fact that ESG is an essential area of investment underwriting is, is really no longer up for debate. You know, evaluating and monitoring elements that fall within ESG in an investment portfolio provides vital non-financial risk and opportunity signals, but that if we've learned anything over the last 18 months, those signals can result in very real financially material positive or negative outcomes. And and these outcomes affect long-term value creation and risk adjustment in a portfolio, regardless of whether or not that portfolio has a mandate to achieve environmental or social outcomes. And so I, I think that because of this explosion in interest in the ESG revolution or, or whatever you want to call it, and the number of sustainability-themed funds that have been launched, whether that be you know, energy transition funds, net zero funds, social impact funds, there's confusion between impact and ESG, where impact as an intentional strategy to achieve both strong financial returns that can be market, can be above market, in addition to quantifiable environmental or social outcomes, is a strategy. ESG is not a strategy. Uh, whenever people say ESG investing, I always kind of kind of smile because from my perspective, ESG investing just means that you're investing responsibly. So ESG as a practice is something that from, from my perspective is a responsibility shared by all investors who want to have a role as a fiduciary in the 21st century. And so I, I think that making it very clear that ESG is simply a tool that investors can use to mitigate risk, but also to capture opportunities, many of them increasingly are linked to sustainability themes. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be investing in sectors or subsectors where that quantifiable impact outcome exists. So I, I think that you know people over the last 18 months, because of how much capital is flooded into energy transition, you know, net zero investing or whatever it may be, my firm being one of them, it's important to take a step back and realize that you know, the responsibility of making sure that you know risks and opportunities that could kind of come out of the woodworks is, is really important, especially to, to limited partners and to portfolio companies we're seeing increasingly. And, that, and that, I think that's a great point. So I know I've made this mistake previously, and I had a misunderstanding between the difference between ESG and sustainability. And ESG is something that's going to happen in every private equity firm everywhere. We've all got to have that consideration, and it's all, and that's all going to become a part. Whereas you don't have to invest sustainable; you just have to have that ESG element uh, within it. And I've, I've definitely made that mistake uh, previously on the podcast. So I apologize for that uh, for those listening. But at least we've now got that clarification fully over what ESG is. Is and also how that differs from what I regard as sustainability or impact, uh, whatever we want to put uh, with regards to titles on that. So thank you very much uh, for sharing that because I've definitely learned and have that full uh, full clarification uh, full clarification now. Right, and kind of to, you know, to get back to the first question you asked me, you know, where do people make mistakes? Like I like to think of ESG as, as a, a game of chess. 
right? Where the more that you play, the better you understand strategies of risk and reward, the better equipped you are to protect your valuable pieces while advancing on strategies for, for upside positioning. So like conducting a legacy investment analysis, ignoring ESGs, so ignoring climate change, ignoring you know, physical climate risk, ignoring diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's a little bit like forgetting to think two steps ahead of your opponent. And then all of a sudden, you know, the inequality rook or the climate change bishop or whatever it may be cuts across the board, putting you in check. And so I, I think that the more you understand ESG, the more that you also appreciate ESG as a practice is not something that should ever remain stagnant. It should be constantly growing, improving, and finding areas of, of excellence and improvement. So it's an evolving landscape, but I, I do think that private capital has a tremendous role to play in the ESG revolution. Um, we're already seeing that with, you know, whether it be the number of, of LPs and GPs that have signed on to, to UNPRI or Series or any of the organizations that are really also leading this push. Oh, all makes uh, all makes sense. So, to dive into kind of what you've been doing to to give our listeners some kind of guidance here, because this is a, as you mentioned, a fairly new concept. Although Europe's really pushed it through, I believe in through legislation now uh, that every firm's got to uh, consider ESG and have an ESG strategy, and we're starting to see people popping up within firms as uh, as heading that up. So, how have you kind of set and defined? your ESG strategy in terms of both your portfolio and also uh, your your LP communication? Yes. I mean, uh, as it relates to Orion specifically, we, we started out as a, a fairly traditional credit energy infrastructure investor. Therefore, we were naturally exposed to you know, climate or environmental related risks that our LPs held us accountable for reporting on. And so that, that kind of made it so that we had to become early adopters. We had to develop an ESG policy document that could guide how we thought about risk and opportunity surrounding our target investment landscape, how we managed and monitored those risks after we, we made an investment, and then how we reported back progress on, on those companies to our limited partners. You know, since then, Orion's portfolio has shifted almost entirely to investments in, that could be considered impact investments where you have measurable, you know, positive environmental outcomes, whether that be in the form of, of carbon, electricity, water, fuel savings that are actually embedded into the company's solutions. And so, so now our, our framework is, is much larger where we're not just taking a risk mitigation approach. We're also looking at the opportunity side. So I think that when, when you 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 take a step back and you understand that GP portfolio company and GP LP engagement structures have been outdated for some time because they've proven insufficient for meeting the minimum requirements of transparency, of accountability, of collective action that's really needed in a world where risk and opportunity are changing every single day. So I think our, our position was, was kind of to encourage constant dialogue was the first step with both portfolio companies and limited partners to make sure that we actually understood and appreciated what our primary stakeholders, ESG interests, concerns, and opportunity areas were. Because what, what we all are coming to know is that every company, every investor is going to approach how they define materiality, how they think about ESG, where they are in their practice of monitoring and reporting, it's all going to be different. And so therefore, at least on the limited partner side, we had found that getting input on what they really needed to see from us 
allowed for us to guide our policy document, which is also a living document outlining pre-investment underwriting procedures, post-investment portfolio monitoring and data collection, and then even listing out remediation strategies, you know, and investment exclusions. And then most importantly, I think as people are thinking about building out a practice, you have to have senior leadership buy-in and participation in addition to dedicated headcount that are held responsible for the actual execution across a team, because it shouldn't just live in a vacuum of the ESG team, you have to have your deal teams involved and aware of what elements they're actually looking at when they're underwriting an investment from an ESG perspective. Um, And then I I think accountability throughout the investment process is another area where, where we've seen tremendous benefit from having a whole separate investment committee solely dedicated to ESG. So an investment will be brought forth for consideration with investment committee. It also has to go through a parallel process through with our ESG committee to make sure that everyone is on the same page about identifying all of the possible risks and opportunities, documenting that so that then we know how to track and monitor each individual investment's ESG profile moving forward. Yeah, very interesting, very structured and organized. I like it. And so I think ESG has a uh, you know big consideration. It's great to see people with such passion as you have, Bethany, for the for for the implementation of this and and no doubt pushing Orion down the right road here. But I think there's a there's a risk of of private equity firms maybe taking this a little bit as a as a tick box exercise. So why should private equity firms you know adopt this like you are and Orion is? as not as a tip box exercise, but as an actual kind of like an excellence tool? I'll start with the the kind of LP side of things. I don't think that there's a private equity firm out there who can go through a fundraising process right now without ESG being a significant portion of due diligence, like a fund manager due diligence. So it, you know, you'll save yourself a lot of time and a lot of headaches in in legal negotiations, in, in having to to answer due diligence questionnaires when you're really not prepared to or making promises that you're actually not yet ready to live up to. So I think that having an, a really sound ESG practice that is guided by a policy document, it can help win LPs who are looking for that sophistication in this area. And then it can also help you retain LPs. On the portfolio company side, I think that you, especially if you're investing in an area targeting sustainability themes, whether they be environmental or social, these, if your goal as the, the equity or credit kind of you know, financier of these companies is to watch them succeed, grow, man, helping them manage real risks, it, it only drives long-term value and performance. What we've seen on the portfolio company side is that there is overwhelming enthusiasm about a firm who has the the capabilities to come in and actually coach them in adopting their own ESG policy documents, in showing trends around ESG performance year over year. It can help from a talent acquisition standpoint within portfolio companies and within the GP itself, in addition to M&A opportunities. I mean, these companies now, whether it be from the next round of financing or if they're, whatever your exit strategy may be, ESG is now becoming a, a tool for kind of attracting those really attractive pathways forward. So I think those areas are are really where you, you start to see ESG becoming more of a value creation tool than you are simply as a risk mitigation tool. 
Interesting, interesting. And and if I'm listening to this and thinking, okay, this is this is all great, but where do I find that information? You know, you mentioned looking at that kind of trends and what's been most likely been Googled uh, to with regards to ESG. Where, where have you, curious, where have you found your knowledge and where have you gone to to learn more about ESG and, uh, and obviously therefore implemented that into Orion? So I think people do not leverage the incredible resources that groups like UNPRI offer. I think that UNPRI offers this framework for ESG integration, but they don't tell you exactly how to do it step by step. They give you the general framework and then they allow for you to individualize it to your you know, asset class, to your target sector focus, all these different things. But UNPRI's framework breaks out those elements of due diligence. So screening companies, company deep dives, the actual investment decision. So, you know, are you requiring certain ESG covenants as a part of the investment agreement with portfolio companies? Like, how are you actually taking into consideration ESG as a like go or no-go component of of making an investment? And then on the the post-investment side, data collection, uh, I think also UNPRI offers all of these different case studies from kind of some of the thought leaders in in ESG in private capital um, that teaches you which questions you should be asking portfolio companies. You know, SASB is another resource that SASB's materiality map gets very, very granular on a sector and subsector focus for these are the most material issues or opportunities that you should be looking at when you're talking about a specific investment and and then also how to monitor them. So all of those things can help guide the annual data collection process with your portfolio companies. They also put out asset class specific guidance. So they're not just asking these people who are becoming members to simply sign up and then report to you on PRI once a year. There's working groups focused on you know, specific asset classes specific technology areas. So I think that thinking about resources and approaching stakeholder engagement through a collaborative manner, not just with your LPs in your portfolio, but also with other GPs or organizations like UNPRI who kind of bring them together is certainly something that has added tremendous value for us. Awesome. Brilliant resources. And thank you very much for, for sharing that. Your what I tend to find is people tend to perform better and higher, however you want to describe it, in areas that they're very passionate about. And clearly, you have a passion and you speak very energetic and passionately about ESG. Where's that out of interest? Where's that passion coming from? Why Why are you so passionate about ESG? Yeah, um, you know, in uh, when I was in college, I studied uh, finance and international marketing, and actually took a whole year, my junior year, moved down to the Dominican Republic and worked in water microfinance. And I had the opportunity to see the detriment of a failed natural resource system. And I came back for my my senior year after seeing the the power of of, SRI or microfinance at solving third world water issues. And I said, I don't want to necessarily go and and work for a bank or be a consultant like a lot of my, my kind of classmates did. So I pursued a higher education or master's degree in environmental management and with a climate and energy emphasis and just fell in love with with natural resource challenges, as weird as that is, or or trying to figure out ways to solve them. You know, energy was something that captured me because of how the history of our world and geopolitics has uh, everything revolves around energy. Everything on earth comes from a handful of forms of energy. And we were entering into this period where our energy system was 
was failing us for what the future of our world needed to look like. And so I got out of grad school and you can imagine uh, at that point, I actually had no idea what to do because no one was talking about a job at the intersection of finance and environmental management, but was lucky enough to spend some time uh, working at a, a group called NREL or National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And from there, like the the rest is the rest is history. Uh, I think that we are in a crisis of multiple different dimensions at the moment, whether that be the climate crisis or whether that be waking up to the realities of, of injustice in, in our country, that things need to change and we need to build the world back better, stronger, cleaner, more inclusive. And so I think that it all started, though, by being you know, brought face to face with third world natural resource challenges that kind of spurred, spurred everything that came after. Yeah, it's amazing how these the kind of that single experience can then uh, create and define a career. Maybe before that, uh, going out there obviously wasn't as aware, but certainly uh, um, now uh, pushing certainly in the right direction. I agree. There's a lot of change that needs to happen across a multitude of, of different areas. And ESG is definitely something that's uh, going to support that um, and a really important topic. So, Sebastian, thank you very much for for sharing all that. If anybody wants to, to kind of reach out to you or reach out to Orion, uh, how do they best uh, best go about that, please? Uh, yeah, always open to collaboration, especially on on areas of ESG or sustainable finance or or anything linked to, to kind of climate related investment strategies. So I would welcome anyone to to reach out via email. Uh, simply Bethany B E T H A N Y at orionenergypartners.com and look forward to to hearing hearing from the audience members. Perfect. Well, Bethany, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insight and your obvious energy and enthusiasm for the topic of uh, ESG. Um, and hopefully um, anybody listening has got some actionable parts that they can take away and start to uh, define and implement their ESG strategy. But thank you very much. Yep. Thanks so much, Alex. It's great to be here. And as always, thank you very much for joining us and listening today. Should you ever need support with private equity professionals or your portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Raw Selection. If you haven't done already, please do subscribe to the podcast as then you'll be notified of when it comes out and we bring these out every two weeks. But till the next time, keep smashing it and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.